0: I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet, and I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases, from M&A rumors to celebrity stylist Dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck, available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hey everyone, thanks for listening to Love Thy Neighbor. You can listen to the entire series right now only on Odyssey, where all of our episodes are available to binge. Before we begin, just a note that this episode contains explicit racist and anti-Semitic language and descriptions of violence. Uh On June 14, 1978, a 35-year-old local business owner and father of four named Arthur Miller was killed by a policeman in Crown Heights. It started as something trivial, a dispute over a suspended driver's license. According to the deputy medical examiner, Miller was alive when two police officers put him in their police car. By the time they arrived at the 77th precinct in Crown Heights a few blocks away, he was dead. Blacks in Crown Heights are
2: angry over recent incidents.
1: That night, hundreds of protesters marched to the precinct where they were confronted by dozens of helmeted officers.
3: We get angry summertime, wintertime. Morning, and noon, we stay angry all the time.
1: Reverend Herbert Daughtry was living in Crown Heights at the time.
3: Wake up angry, go to bed angry, eat angry. We sleep angry at what was happening. Police was killing us in 1978, Arthur Miller.
1: He was a prominent civil rights activist and is the author of a book called No Monopoly on Suffering, Blacks and Jews in Crown Heights and Elsewhere.
3: And we were powerless. And uh, we intended to put an end to it. A part of the powerlessness is that we couldn't even protect ourselves, couldn't even protect children.
1: Two days after the killing of Arthur Miller, while the Caribbean community was still reeling, a group of Lubovichers chased a black 16-year-old named Victor Rhodes through Crown Heights and viciously beat him. A
2: 16-year-old black youth, Victor Rhodes, has been in a coma most of the week after he was beaten by a group of Hasidim, apparently for taunting an old Jewish man.
3: Jews was chasing him up from that corner up down the block and they stopped him and just started kicking him and stomping
4: them. How many people?
3: About 50.
4: And how long did it go on? about five minutes. It was a vigilante style. He was stomping and kicking the boy until it was a... When I walked out, his head was just a puff of blood.
3: Um, Two when the Hasidic uh, community was accused of beating Victor Rhodes, 15, 16-year-old black youth, into a pulpit, a pulp. I mean, I went to see him in the hospital, and his head was big.
1: It was reported at the time that the mob that chased Victor Rhodes included members of a Lubavitch vigilante patrol group, which they denied. The Maccabees, who we talked about last episode, were disbanded in 1971 under intense political pressure. But by the late 70s, they'd reformed under the new name, the Shmira, which means guarding in Hebrew. For some blacks,
2: the Hasidic patrols have become the leading symbol of racial friction.
1: This is from an NBC News report on June 23rd, 1978, a week after the beating of Victor Rhodes.
2: The sedums say they're needed for protection against crime. Police could take up to an hour. You're waiting, you're waiting, you're waiting. If you have a burglar at your window, you call the police, you know, you could just stand and wait there and he could he empty out your house before you get the police there.
4: But on the street, there's bitter argument about the patrols.
3: I feel safer when I know I see them on the street. It's not a vigilante group. Don't call that, Don't call that a vigilante group. I would call it self-protection. I did not. There was
1: clearly a need to fill a void in city services, including public safety, and it makes sense that, like the Maccabees before them, the Shmira had a close relationship with the local police station. But by the end of the 1970s, Crown Heights was nearly 80% black. And though the Shmira claimed their mission was to protect everyone in the neighborhood, the group was made up of mostly Hasidic men. And some of the problems predicted by residents that we heard from last episode, things that they were worried about 15 years earlier, they were starting to become a reality. The black residents in Crown Heights often complained that they were harassed by the Shmira, stopped and forced to show ID, and intimidated in their own neighborhood.
3: You shouldn't have vigilantes.
4: This is America. You shouldn't have vigilantes, you know. Yeah, but look, look. Who's going to protect
3: me if I want to go home at night? Well, where is the police? But you
4: shouldn't have vigilantes riding around in cars. You
3: don't need vigilantes. No, but the guys that beat that kid up,
1: you don't need that. You got the police down there. That's who should do it. Late
2: this week, in frustration, blacks started organizing their own street patrol.
1: In the summer of 1978, Reverend Daughtry, an incendiary and controversial figure who came under fire at times for anti-Semitic statements, helped form an all-Black vigilante patrol group with other community leaders.
3: We intended to uh, uh, provide a presence, a no-nonsense presence, and that we were not, we were not the turn the other cheek crowd, you know, and we wanted to make that clear.
1: I'm Collier Meyerson, and this is Love Thy Neighbor, Episode 3, Things Fall Apart.
4: And the
0: statistics this year are really grim. Every day in New York State, six people are murdered, and five of those are murdered right here in New York City. The total, the record
1: number for the year. This is from an ABC News report in 1981. Racial tension and rising crime weren't the only New York stories in the late 70s and throughout the 80s, but they were the big ones. What was happening in Crown Heights was taking place against this larger backdrop, an escalating series of high-profile deaths and reactions that also fueled the explosion of the 1991 riot. By the end of 1981, homicides in New York would reach an all-time high. Over the next five years, over a 1,000 people were killed in the city each year. The city's revenue issue worsened, and poverty rates remained high through the 80s. Public services were bled dry or disappeared altogether because of massive cuts in public funding. All of that contributed to a rise in homicides and street robberies in New York. It also contributed to some of the worst racial tension the city had experienced in decades. And Crown Heights was not spared. Many Lubavichers were attacked and killed in their neighborhood during this time, though the crimes went largely unnoticed outside the community. Because of my dad's work, I grew up hearing about homicides and police brutality of Black New Yorkers, names that he brought up constantly, and names that anyone living in New York in the 1980s will probably recognize. September 1983, Michael Stewart, who is young and black, is arrested and beaten to death by a group of white police officers.
2: Michael was a graffiti artist and he was killed in the subways while allegedly writing some graffiti.
1: My dad represented his family.
2: He was close with Keith Herring at the time and he was young. He was 21. Actually, Al Sharpton, Vernon Mason, and Alt Maddox were very high profile people. Um, And they were leading protests related to the death of Michael Stewart.
1: December 1986. 23-year-old Crown Heights resident Michael Griffith is driving with two friends in the mostly white neighborhood of Howard Beach on their way to pick up Griffith's paycheck when their car stalled. They walked into a pizza parlor to use the phone. And when they stepped outside... A gang of white teenagers was waiting for them, wielding baseball bats and tire irons. One of Griffith's friends was able to escape, another was severely beaten, and Griffith didn't make it out alive. Somebody.
4: In sorrow and anger, dozens of blacks massed in the white, middle-class neighborhood of Howard Beach to mourn the death of Michael Griffith, a 23-year-old construction worker. He and two friends marooned in this area late Friday night when their car broke down, were chased by about 10 white youths wielding bats and sticks. Trying to escape on this expressway, Griffith was hit by a car and killed.
1: My father represented Michael Griffith's family and would go on to represent his brother, Chris, six years later in the aftermath of the Crown Heights riot. Chris is the photojournalist who was beaten up by the cops while he was reporting on the riot. Incidents like these happen with shocking frequency during this period in New York City. And every time, it seemed like the same old cycle of violence, outrage, and political stasis would unfold. Two months after the death of Michael Griffith, another Black Crown Heights resident named Willie Mae Reddish fled from her home at 1.30 in the morning. Someone had broken into her basement and set an orange juice carton filled with gasoline on fire. Reddish escaped the burning home with her mother and three sons.
2: There was speculation that it was done by members of the Hasidic community. And so there was a big protest in 1987 against what we perceive to be not only racial violence, but really unequal treatment by the police department and by social services.
1: This is Mark Winston Griffith. No relation to Michael and Chris. No one was ever caught for the firebombing, and spokesmen for the Lubovitch community denied that it could be one of their own. But hundreds of Black residents marched through the neighborhood. The protest was both a response to larger dynamics in New York, police brutality, racist violence, and specific to Crown Heights.
2: There were about 2,000 police who showed up. They were on horseback, they were on roofs, there were snipers, they were everywhere. Not only did we we feel like they were there because they felt like the black people were going to tear shit up, but also because the Hasidic community demanded it for their protection.
1: They stopped outside the home of the Rebbe, Menachem Mendel Schneerson. The march ended a block away from the Lubavitch headquarters at 770. The New York Times quoted one of the residents, Anita Burson, saying, Sometimes I feel like we're living in an apartheid state where a tiny minority is controlling our state. They have to accept the fact that we are here. They have to respect our beliefs just as we are bound to respect theirs. One protester sign read, Johannesburg Howard Beach Crown Heights. It wasn't that the crimes against Michael Griffith and Willie May Reddish were committed by the same people, or even the same groups of people. But to many Black people in Brooklyn, these tragedies felt deeply related. They felt like their neighbors saw them as disposable, and that the city and the police didn't care enough to do anything about it. After the break, two different visions for a city in turmoil. The fight for mayor between David Dinkins and Rudolph Giuliani.
0: You can listen to the competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.
1: Wake up! Wake up, wake up, wake up! In the summer of 1989, Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing comes out. From
3: the heart of bed you're listening to We Love Radio. Doing the yin and the yang, the hip and the hop, the stupid fresh thing. It was
1: inspired by the murder of Michael Griffith, Now widely hailed as a classic, the film is about rising tensions in Brooklyn on a hot summer day. There were fears when it was released that the film itself would incite race riots.
4: I know the cops did the wrong thing, that's for sure. And what's sad is that they continue to do the wrong thing and nothing ever happens.
1: Here's Spike Lee at the film's premiere at the Cannes Film Festival. The 32-year-old filmmaker sounds a bit more reserved than you're probably used to hearing him.
4: Uh, for me, that's what the movie's about, you know, about human life and how in America, black life has become devalued, where you don't have the same premium, if you might say. If a black person's killed, it really doesn't matter.
1: Spike was prescient about how quickly things could escalate between neighbors in Brooklyn.
3: Who told you
4: to step on my sneakers? Who told you to walk on my side of the block? Who told you to be in my neighborhood? I own this brownstone. Who told you to buy a brownstone on my block in my neighborhood on my side of the street?
1: Spike said that he hoped the discussion generated by the film would influence the upcoming election. David Dinkins was challenging Democratic Mayor Ed Koch in the primary, and Spike held Koch responsible for the terrible race relations in New York. Spike got his wish.
0: Ed Koch's 12-year reign as mayor of New York City came to an historic end last night. The victor was Manhattan Borough President David Dinkins, who trounced Koch in a four-way race with 52% of the vote, calling himself the guy that brings people together.
1: Dinkins won the Democratic primary and was poised to become the first black mayor in the history of New York City. His Republican opponent was a guy you'll recognize.
2: Six months ago, when I began campaigning, I knew a lot about uh, this city. After all, I was born here.
1: Long before he was Donald Trump's bumbling henchman, Rudy Giuliani was a powerful figure in New York, a U.S. attorney who'd taken down mafia bosses and broken up insider trading scams and shined a light on scandals within the Koch administration. And he was now running to become mayor on a platform that was almost purely about law and order. And he was kind
2: of seen as, you know, Mr. Clean and um, someone who was also extraordinarily competent in you know, tackling the mob and corrupt politicians and Wall Street criminals. and
1: Andrew Kurtzman is the author of Rudy Giuliani, Emperor of the City.
2: He was kind of a sheriff. He was kind of the guy who was not intoxicated by all the money and the drugs and the temptations that the 1980s represented. He was kind of the stern... Uh, almost like this religious figure.
1: Giuliani drove the message hard. New York had become a cesspool, and he was the only one who could clean it up. He worked overtime to stress that Dinkins had absolutely no idea how to deal with the troubles the city was facing. Uh,
2: The last uh, four years, we've had dramatic increases in crime. Last year, we set a record for murder in the city, yet we reduced the number of police officers patrolling our streets. We could reallocate many more police officers to street patrol, foot patrol. That's the kind of thing we have to do. I, I helped do that on the Lower East right. Side of Manhattan. I know how to do it.
1: Giuliani's campaign ads flash on images of drug deals and trash cans on fire. Prostitutes, a white woman fleeing a crime, a bleeding body being carried off on a stretcher.
4: I have tried very hard in the course of this campaign to remain positive. It is Mr. Giuliani who seeks, uh, with scurrilous commercials and the like, to attack me at every opportunity.
1: Before he decided to run for mayor, David Dinkins had been Manhattan Borough President. He was part of this political juggernaut known as the Gang of Four, a group of Black Harlem politicians who rose through the city and state's political ranks starting in the early 60s.
2: He comes from a, a generation where, where it was important to integrate, and it was, it was very aspirational.
1: Peter Nobler is the co-author of Dinkins' autobiography, a Mayor's Life, Governing New York's Gorgeous Mosaic.
2: You never saw him in jeans, you never saw him in a t-shirt. He comported himself with you know, sartorial respect. I, I find it very interesting that, that that's what, that, what people key to, as opposed to his you know, intellectual rigor or the things he actually did. There's a lot of talk about, about the way he dressed. He dressed that way because his generation had to be accepted by white society. And the way to do that is to speak the King's English and to dress properly.
1: It's worth pausing here for a second to say that white politicians don't have to pay attention to their whiteness. The way that Dinkins talked and dressed, the tightrope that he walked in trying to appeal to white voters, it worked for him sometimes and got held against him at others. So his strategy to become mayor was very different from Giuliani's. Giuliani was basically just appealing to voters' fears by talking relentlessly about crime and the need for a real sheriff in town. It's not that David Dinkins wasn't talking about crime. He was, a lot. But he was also running on a message of racial healing and reconciliation. —
3: I've said,
2: this is is totally... uh, —
4: What I have said is that I will double the number of community patrol officers in my first term. I was a member of the board of Vera when the community patrol program was born. And, and I maintain that we can do that in four years. And I, and I would put a cop on every train. Mr. Giuliani usually says that that, that means I'm going to take them from the platform. I have not said we would redeploy them. He knows that. It's disingenuous to suggest. As for,
3: as for education.
1: Dinkins was hardly anti police. He supported increasing the NYPD's budget and hiring more cops. But on the campaign trail, he also addressed the problem of police brutality.
4: Another concern is the morale of police officers and how they deal with community members. As mayor, what would either one of you gentlemen do to change the relationship between the community and the department and to cut back on police brutality? Well, uh, it is a very important area. I have tried always, when I have been critical of the police, and, and I have been on occasion, Uh, Eleanor Bumpers, Michael Stewart, Juan Rodriguez. I've spoken out at those times. But each time I tried to use great care to make the point that I believe that the vast number of women and men who make up the New York City Police Department are good, honest, hardworking people who put their lives on the line for all of us every day. Uh, Having said that, it still is important uh, that it be understood that it is illegal to use excessive force.
1: Dinkins knew he'd win most of the black vote in New York, but that wouldn't be enough. We
0: still obviously had a significant proportion of whites living in New York City, unlike other of the larger cities in the country. So to win,
1: you needed a multicultural, multiracial coalition. Esther Fuchs is a political science professor at Columbia University. An important part of that coalition was the religious Jewish community, it's hard to become mayor of New York City without the support of religiously conservative Jews, who often vote similarly.
0: Dinkins had an extraordinary track record of supporting the state of Israel, supporting the Jewish community, supporting Soviet Jewry. He had Farrakhan threaten his life because he refused to to do these denunciations that were going on in some of the extreme parts of the African-American Political uh, world at that time, he would
1: not do that. And In September 1989, about a month and a half before the election, Dinkins went out to Crown Heights to speak with the Rebbe, whom he deeply respected, at the 770 headquarters.
4: Well, I, I want you to know that the blessings that I got before worked very well. Very happy to hear it.
1: Dinkins had met the Rebbe before the primary. The Rebbe had given him his blessing as he often did for the candidates seeking office. And Dinkins had won that race.
4: And uh, I would, would ask for your continued blessing.
3: Yes. Then I will ask you to cash in as soon as possible. I hope that the new future, the melting pot, will be so active that it will be not necessary.
1: The rabbit tells Dinkins that he hopes the city becomes such a melting pot, that New Yorkers no longer even need to take note of people's race. Aren't we all created in God's image? For a lot of Lubavitch people, this really resonated. I thought that Mayor Dinkins was the sweetest man. This is Henya Lane. She's a well-known shadchanet among the Lubavitch community in Crown Heights. That's Yiddish for matchmaker. Dating works a bit differently for Lubavitchers. And pairing young people for marriage is still an important role in the neighborhood to this day.
3: I don't know if I'm a celebrity. I'm just a nice lady. So before um, a young bride gets married, um, we give them many classes and we teach them uh, how to respect each other, how to live with each other, physically, emotionally, mentally.
1: you came to believe that Dinkins was the right candidate. He was kind. He was
3: gentle. He listened to him. I was so happy that we had A mayor that was Black because we're colorblind. It doesn't matter what color he is or who he is. Um, We had Koch, he was Jewish. We had Dean, he was Jewish. We had mayor. I was happy. We should have all kinds. We should be diversified in mayors and governors and police. I like all these things.
1: Dinkins' vision of racial healing was made all the more resonant late that summer before the election after yet another killing of a young Black New Yorker. A white crowd in the Italian American neighborhood of Bensonhurst stalked and killed 16-year-old Yusef Hawkins. The brutal murder was a racist, senseless attack. Youssef, 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 Youssef,
3: Youssef.
1: And Yusef Hawkins' name became a rallying cry, another victim in the long list of racist violence. Dinkins was favored to win early on, but the race tightened throughout the fall. And on the eve of the election, it looked neck and neck.
0: Dinkins got almost 30% of the white vote when he beat three-term mayor Edward Koch in the primary. To win again tomorrow, he must put together that same coalition of black and white voters. But Giuliani has much of the white Catholic vote locked up. That leaves Jewish voters as the white swing group that both candidates must have to build a winning coalition.
1: When they finished counting the votes, Dinkins won by an incredibly slim margin, less than 50,000 votes.
4: And finally tonight, the healing has begun. Mayor-elect David Dinkins lived up to his image as a conciliator last night with a carefully worded victory speech and a deliberate selection of guests on the podium as he made that speech. It was friends
1: and family only. No politicians, including Jesse Jackson, joined him on the stage. Dinkins had won enough of the Jewish vote, though not a majority.
4: Last night, Dinkins became mayor with only 39% of the Jewish vote. By contrast, 97% of all African Americans voted for David Dinkins, hardly surprising since nearly every black elected official and clergyman came out in his support. And that vote was crucial in winning Brooklyn, the Bronx, and Manhattan.
1: Two months later, Dinkins was sworn in at City Hall the first black mayor in the history of New York City.
4: David Dinkins, who is now Mayor Dinkins, is scheduled to step out from City Hall and take a public oath of office and become New York City's 106th mayor and the city's first African-American mayor.
1: As Dinkins famously put it in his inauguration speech after beating Giuliani.
4: I see New York as a gorgeous mosaic of race and religious faith, of national origin and sexual orientation of individuals whose families arrived yesterday and generations ago, coming through Ellis Island or Kennedy Airport or on buses bound for the Port Authority. In that spirit, I offer this fundamental pledge. I intend to be the mayor of all the people of New York.
1: The gorgeous mosaic was a nice image. The reality, from day one of Dinkin's term, would soon prove to be much, much uglier.
2: You don't just walk in and, and uh, drop crime. Uh, it had been on a rise. It had been on 20, 25 years uh, skyrocket, just like up, 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 up. And it continued on its way up for for the first year. But as far as a political liability, the first couple of years when it when it was not safe, and uh, you know, here you have... The, the first black mayor, the assumption was, well, he's going to come in and, and it's all going to end. Uh, and, and it didn't.
1: Next, unlove thy neighbor. When it
3: crashed into the building, You just heard everybody start screaming. They were rocking the car, they were throwing things. I got hit in the hand with a bat. The violence
2: started at dusk. Dozens of demonstrators vented their anger with bottles and rocks that kept police and residents running and ducking.
1: Love Thy Neighbor is hosted by me, Collier Meyerson. The show was written by Noah Remnick and myself. Just Jupiter is our producer, and Justine Daum is our managing producer. Production assistance and research by Yinka rickford Angwin. Our senior producer is Henry Malofsky. Joel Lovell is our editor. Fact-checking by Natsumi Ajisaka. Original music is by Will Johnson. Our engineers are Davey Sumner and Jason Richards. Our show art, which includes a David Burns photo from the Associated Press, was designed by Kurt Courtney, Josefina Francis, and Lauren Vieira at Cadence 13. Special thanks to Leela Day, Jasmine Hughes, Mordechai Lightstone, Ike Shrewskandaraja, Sandra Ellen, Grace Chen, Moira Curran, and Khadim Jang. Legal services for Pineapple Street by Bianca Grimshaw at Granderson De Roche and Katie Ali Mohammedi and Vernissa Washington at Donaldson Califf Perez. This show is a production of Pineapple Street Studios. Our executive producers are Max Linsky and Jenna weiss If you've enjoyed listening to this episode of Love Thy Neighbor, you can listen to the next episode and the rest of the series right now exclusively on Odyssey. Find all the podcasts and audio that matter to you. Download Odyssey from the App Store or Google Play today. Thanks for listening.